Volume Three, Chapter Eight of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Three, Chapter Eight. The dead abide with us, though stark and cold. Earth seems to grip them; they are with us still. They have forged our chains of being for good or ill. Matilde Blind. John was late. Mitty looked out several times to see if he were coming, and then put down the tea-cake to the fire. At last his step came slowly along the garret gallery, and Lindo, who approved of nursery tea, walked in first, his dignity somewhat impaired by a bra hanging from his back flounce. John saw the firelight through the open door, and the figure in the low chair waiting for him. She had heard him coming, and was getting stiffly up to make the tea. Mitty, you should not wait for me,' he said, sitting down in his own place by the fire. "'Would they let her keep the brass kettle and her silver teapot?' "'Yes, no doubt they would, but somebody would have to ask.' He supposed he would be that somebody. Everything she possessed had been bought by himself with other people's money. He let the tea last as long as possible. If Lindo had more than his share of tea-cake, no one was the wiser. At last Mitty cleared away and sat down in the rocking-chair. "'Don't light the candles, Mitty?' "'Why, not, my dear? I can't be sitting with me hands before me, and holes in your socks, ashamed to be seen.' John came and sat down on the floor beside her, and leaned his head against her. "'Never mind the socks just now. There is something I want to talk to you about.' He looked at the fire through the bars of the high nursery fender, and something in its glimmer seen from so near the floor, through the remembered pattern of the wires which he had lost sight of for twenty years, suddenly recalled the times when he had sat on the hearthrug, as he was sitting now, with his head against Mitty's knee, confiding to her what he would do when he was a man. "'Do you remember, Mitty,' he said, "'how I used to tell you that when I grew up you should ride in a carriage and have a gold brooch and a clock that played a tune?' "'I remember, my darling.' and how, next time Charles went into York, you give him all you had, and half a crown it was, to buy me a brooch, and the silly staring fool went and spent it, and brought back that great thing with the mock stones in, and you was as pleased as pleased. Ha! <laughs> I was angry with Charles for taking your bits of money, and all he said was, Well, Mrs. Empson, I went to a many shops, and I give five shillings for it so as to get a big un. I remember it, said John, it was about the size of a small poultice, and so Charles paid half. Good old Charles! I seem to have been much deceived in my youth. His deep-set eyes watched the fire, watched the semblance of a little castle in the heart of the glow. Mitty was quite happy with her darling's head against her knee. "'When the castle falls in, I will tell her,' said John to himself. But the fire had settled itself. The castle held. At last Mitty put out her hand and gave it a poke, not with the brass poker, of course, but with a little black slave which did that polished aristocrat's work for it. "'Mitty,' said John, "'I'm not so rich now as when I was in pinafores, and even then, you see, the brooch was not bought with my own money. Charles gave half. I have never given you anything that was paid for with my own money. I have been spending other people's money all my life.' "'Why, bless you, dear heart,' said Mitty, "'and who gave me my silver teapot, I should like to know?' and the ivory work-box, and that very kettle staring you in the face, and the witchwood tea-things, and, and everything, if it was not you. 
John did not answer. His face twitched. The bars of the fender were blurred. The brass kettle, instead of staring him in the face, melted quite away. Mitty stroked his head and face. Crying, she said. My lammy crying. Not for myself, Mitty. Who for, then? For that Miss Dinah? No, Mitty, for you. This is no home for you and me. He took her hard hand and rubbed his cheek against it. It belongs to Colonel Tempest. I am not my father's son, Mitty. Well, my precious, said Mitty, soothingly, in no wise discomposed by what John feared would have quite overwhelmed her. And if your poor mammy did say as much to me when she was light-headed, when her pains was on her, there's no call to fret about that, seeing it's a long time ago, and her dead and all. Poor thing, I can see her now with her pretty eyes and her little hands. And she put her head against me and say, Nursey, Nursey I was to her, I'm not fit neither to live nor to die. Many many's the night I've roared to think of her after she was gone, when you was asleep in your crib. But there's no need for you to fret, me dearie. John's heart contracted. Mitty knew also. Oh, you might have but have started life knowing what even Mitty knew. They'd no business to marry her to Mr. Tempest, continued Mitty, shaking her head. And she, poor thing, idolising that black Lord Fane as was her first cousin. It wasn't likely after that she settled to Mr. Tempest, who was as light as tow. It was against nature. She never took a bit of interest in him, nor him in her neither, that I can see. A hard man he was, too. A hard man. She sent for him when she was dying. She would not see him while there was any chance. Forgive me, she says. She says it over and over, me holding her up. I wouldn't ask if it I was staying, but I'm doing the best I can by dying. It's not much to make up, but it's the best I can. And, she says, don't think Jack as all women are bad like me. There's a many good ones as'll make you happy yet when I'm gone. I can see him now, standing by her, looking past her out of the window with his face like a flint. I've known two false ones, he says, and he went away without another word. And she says after a bit to me, I've always been frightened at the very thought of dying, but it's living I'm frightened of now. Oh, Master John, your poor mammy. She did repent, and Mr. Tempest sent for me to the library after the funeral, and he says, Promise me, nurse, that you'll never repeat what your mistress said to me when she was not herself. He looked hard at me, and I promised. And I've never breathed it to any living soul, not to one I haven't, from that day to this. I find it out three weeks ago, said John. As I am not Mr. Tempest's son, everything I have belongs by right to Colonel Tempest, the next heir. Not to me. Overly is not mine. It never was mine. But Mitty could not be made to understand what his mother's frailty had to do with John. When at last she grasped the idea that John would make known the fact that he was not his father's son, she was simply incredulous that her lamb could do such a thing, could bring shame upon his own mother. No, whatever else he might do, he would never do that. Why, Mrs. Alcock would know and friends as she was with Mrs. Alcock, and had been for years, such a word had never passed her lips. And the people in the village, and the tradespeople, and Jones and Evans from York, who were putting up the new curtains, everybody would know. Mitty became quite agitated. Surely, surely he'd never tell against his poor mother in her grave. Mitty, said John, forcing himself to repeat what it had been difficult enough to say once, 
"'Don't you see that I can't stay here and keep what is not mine? "'Nothing is mine if I am not Mr. Tempest's son. "'I ought never to have been called so. "'We must go away.' Mitty was perplexed. "'Not in that great weary house in London,' she said anxiously, "'with every spot of water to carry up from the bottom.' "'That is not mine either,' said John, in despair, "'rising to his feet and standing before her. "'Oh, Mitty, try and understand. "'Nothing is mine.' "'Nothing, nothing, nothing, not even the clothes I have on. I am a beggar.' Mitty looked at him in a dazed way. She could not understand, but she could believe. Her chin began to tremble. It was almost a relief to see at last the tears which she had dreaded from the first. "'My lamb, a beggar,' she said over and over again. And she cried a little, but not much. Mitty was getting old, and she was not able to realise a change a change so incomprehensible as this. "'But we need not be unhappy,' said John, kneeling down by her and putting his arms round her. "'We shall be together still. Wherever I go, you will go with me. I don't yet know where it will be, but we shall have a little home together somewhere, just you and I. And you'll do my socks and handkerchiefs, won't you, Mitty? And—' John controlled his voice, but he hid his face in her lap that she might not see it. "'We'll be so happy together.' At the moment I think John would have given up heaven itself to make that hour smooth to Mitty. "'And your cakes, Mitty,' he went on hoarsely, "'they are better than any one else's. You shall have a little kitchen, and you will make the cakes yourself, won't you, and the—' His voice tumbled heavily. "'The, the, the rock-buns!' "'My precious,' said Mitty, sobbing, "'don't you fret yourself. I can make a many things besides them. Albert puddings and moulds and them little cheese straws and, and a sight of things.' There's a deal of work in my old hands yet. It's only the spring as has took the starch out of me. I always feel a sinking in the spring. Lord, my darling, the times and times again I've been sitting here just dithering with a morsel of crochet, or idling of a bit of reading, and wishing he was having a set of night-shirts to me. Love had found out the way. John had appealed to the right instinct. Mitty was already busying herself with a future in which she should minister to her child's comfort and John saw, with a relief that was half a pang, that the calamity of his life held hardly any place in the heart that loved him so much. "'I've a sight of things,' continued Mitty, wiping her eyes. "'Books and pictures and cushions put away. My precious shall not go short. And there's two pair of linen sheets that I bought with my own money, and pillow slips to match, and six silver teaspoons and one dessert. My lamb shall have things comfortable about him.' She fell to communing with herself. John did not speak. "'I'll leave me places tidy,' said Mitty. "'Tidy I didn't find em, but tidy I'll leave em. "'I can't go till after the spring-cleaning, Master John. "'I never trust that Fanny to do the scrubbing unless I'm behind her. "'I caught her washing round the mats instead of under only last week.' John felt unable to enter into the question of the spring-cleaning. There was another silence. At last Mitty said defiantly, and I shall take your Morocco shoes, and in your little chairs I give you myself. I don't care what anybody says, I shall take them. And the old horse and the Noe's Ark. It will be all right, said John, getting slowly to his feet. Nobody will want to have them, or anything of mine. And he kissed her, and went out. He went to the library and sat down by the fire. The resolution and aspiration of a few hours ago, where were they now? He felt broken in body and soul. 
Lindo came in, nibbled John's elbow, and scrutinized the fire. John scratched him absently on the top of his back between the tufts. Lindo, he said, the world is a hard place to live in. But Lindo, bulging with an unusual allowance of tea-cake, and winnowing the air with an appreciative hind leg, did not think so. End of Volume 3 Chapter 8